So how'd I, how'd I come to speak on Ecclesiastes, try and squeeze in a, a, a message on a very, very difficult book in one Sunday? Before uh, Guga was getting ready to go on the trip, uh, it just so happened that I was reading <laughs> this book um, by David Gibson <clears throat> called Living Life Backwards. And uh, you guys know, most of you know the situation with my mother. And uh, she actually just a couple of days ago has decided no more chemo, no more treatments, no more anything. She's going to just take supportive care. And fortunately, we had a blessed time with her and she came up with dad and we had a wonderful, wonderful week together. And um, um, she's loving the Lord and they're both kind of excited about this message. But I was... Uh, reading this book, Living Life Backwards, came up, and I really wanted to read that um, just because the title, um, How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live in Light of the End. I don't know if you can read that up there, but that's the title. Living Life Backward, How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live in Light of the End. Uh, so that was going on with Mom, and then some of you know that um, I'm a, a widower, and uh, my wife... Becky, I think I freaked Rebecca out the very first time you guys were here, and they're Daniel and Rebecca, and I said, oh, my late wife's name was Becky. We were Daniel and Rebecca. That was the first time, I, first thing I said to her, maybe. I think I kind of freaked her out a little bit, so I apologize for that. <laughs> but um, anyway, we uh, uh, went through a lot of things over a 10-year period uh, with her and losing her. So I read this book, and it was such an encouragement and a blessing to me uh, that I wanted to share it with you. And when, when Guga said, uh, you know, I'm going to be missing a Sunday, I said, oh, oh I want to tell everybody about this book. I want to tell everybody about this book. And then um, it got a little more involved. Than that. <laughs> but uh, but that was, that's the basis of how we got here is, is uh, I was very excited to, to share this with you. What I, well, some of the things I gleaned from this book and from the book of Ecclesiastes, most importantly. And... Uh, it just so happened that like two days after I read that, I finished reading it, about two days later, I get uh, emails from Reformation Heritage Books and uh, this book shows up on my email. Boom. And it's pretty rare. There's not a whole lot of books on Ecclesiastes out there. So it's pretty rare that it just so happened that this book popped up. So I immediately bought it and started reading it. Benjamin Shaw's Ecclesiastes Life in a Fallen World. And this guy is a Hebrew scholar. He's a professor. He teaches Hebrew and Old Testament. Um, so this looks at the book from a very um, scholarly way and a real break. And in fact, if you wanted one of the best commentaries of just going through verse by verse uh, exegetically through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is very rare to find, it's very difficult to do, but this guy does a very good good job of it too. So it was a huge help in kind of focusing where I was going to go on these things. So I am really actually looking forward to sharing this portion of Scripture with you. J.R. Packer says, Psalms teach us how to worship, Proverbs how to behave, Job how to suffer, Song of Solomon how to love, and Ecclesiastes how to live. And after reading these two books, I would add to that how to live in a fallen world by reminding us that we're going to die soon. 
So why don't you stand with me? Let's read out of Ecclesiastes. If you're gonna, I'm going to have you guys turning to a bunch of passages today. So have your Bibles ready. Have your turning fingers ready. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futility. That's a Hebrew word that we're going to be paying close attention to here in a little bit. Futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. For anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will not be after him. You may be seated. God bless the reading of his word. So in approaching this, here's my outline. I took a very simple approach this is a good approach to take with any book that you're studying any literature really that you're reading right the who when where what and why of the book and we're not going to go to every verse in Ecclesiastes Um, that's a difficult task Guga kept saying you're brave you're brave to do this a braver, insane. There's a thin line there, right? So, but this is not going to be an exegetical sermon where I'm going to go and tell you what every single verse in this book means. Okay? Like I said, I would, I would uh, commend you to Benjamin Shaw's book on Ecclesiastes for that. But we're going to pull out some verses, but we don't want to manipulate the verses to make them say what we want them to say. Okay? That's eisegesis. So it's not an exegetical sermon. It's not an eisegetical sermon. Because the book, this book especially, gets abused often that way. People have pulled sections of Ecclesiastes out and made them say that abortion's okay, hedonism's fantastic, animal rights, people and animals are equal. They can pull out a sentence here and there and twist it to make some of those things uh, the way they want them. But my goal 
what I'm hoping to do for us is to just give you a taste of Ecclesiastes. So, if Scripture is our spiritual food, right? I'm going to give you a sample or a bite, like the people in Costco that you go around and you get a little sample. And what I'm hoping is you'll take a little sample and hopefully you'll buy it and you'll go read the book and you'll, you'll study it and, and dive deeper into it. But we just want to get a taste today. And this is a strange taste. It's different. It's a unique taste from the rest of Scripture. We were talking uh, when the guys were over. I forget how we got on the topic. We were talking about uh, somebody putting peanut butter on a hamburger or something like that came up. And uh, we all decided that was a little strange. But uh, that's kind of what this is going to be like today. This is, this is stuff um, that we're not used to. Some of the things you're going to hear out of here. Okay? That you're not going to hear maybe from other pulpits. And you're not going to hear unless you go to this book. <clears throat> So let's start talking about who. Let's start our outline here. Who wrote it? The authorship of the book of Ecclesiastes. The question of who and when are closely tied to each other. Because for most of, most of church history, it was assumed that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes along with Song of Solomon and Proverbs. And there's a few different ideas about who wrote it. Possibly a scribe taking down Solomon's words. That's the opening statement of the book says the words of the preacher. So it's a third person writing the words of the preacher, Koheleth. And the statement could also lead to a person compiling the king's work after his death. Like maybe even a while after his death, they took a bunch of his writings and kind of piled them together. That's kind of Matthew Henry's take in his commentary where he thinks it was written later on. That also might add... or explain maybe some of the choppiness of the book because it goes from poetry to proverbial to proverbs to you know I'm, I mean to uh, parables and it kind of jumps around a little bit and that's why it's so hard to outline it's so hard to um, put together but if Solomon indeed authored it uh, or his words were dictated while he was alive it's easy to date right because we know when Solomon lived but we'll get into more detail about when in the next one but the main thing here is <clears throat> this Koheleth character. Verse 1 says, <clears throat> the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That Hebrew word is Koheleth. And whoever actually wrote this book, they want us to know where the words are coming from. They use this title. Okay, So instead of his name, we're given this word, Koheleth. It's translated preacher, teacher, or more literally, the gatherer of the assembly. Our name for the book of Ecclesiastes comes from the Septuagint's Greek translation of Koheleth, which is Ecclesia, which means the gathering. So that's why uh, uh, it's translated as church. You know, the word Ecclesia is translated as church in the New Testament. So when we use this word Koheleth, the person who's gathering the people in the Old Testament, they're going to call him preacher, the preacher. And it goes, uh, we just had a, a gentleman email the church through the website in Spanish. And fortunately, I had Nestor to hand that, that off to. But he was looking for an Iglesia Reformada, which is a church, a Reformed church. Iglesia. Ecclesia. And I believe the Portuguese is Iglesia. Right? So, that word Ecclesia is where we get our, our book. But it all comes from this word Koheleth. And this word is only used seven times in the entire Bible. 
All of them are in Ecclesiastes. Three of them are in chapter 1. Three of them are in chapter 12, the last chapter. And once right in the middle. It's kind of interesting. So this, you see how our bite here is already has some strange ingredients, right? In our bite. This one word that's only used here. Okay? So these are the words of Koheleth that we're going to be looking at. <clears throat> when it was written. <clears throat> the book was written if by Solomon, like we said, at the end of his life or by an anonymous person at the end of Solomon's life or soon after his death. That's almost 3,000 years ago. 2,950-ish years ago. Okay? But in the 19th century, a linguistical argument surfaced for some time later than that, probably post-exilic, which if you remember from our study in Esther, she was, that was taking place in post-exilic time. Okay? That's about 500 years later than when Solomon lived. But this linguistical argument stuck for about 100 years from the middle of the eight, you know, 1800s to the middle of the 1900s. And it was proposed by a man named Franz Dielich. And we've seen in our Wednesday night studies, we get together and we're looking at the language. We're going through these books and pulling out the Hebrew words and how many times it's used here and where it's used there. And uh, we found out that it is a very unique book linguistically. But most recently, or recently, most experts would put it at the later part of Kohala's life, which would be about 930 B.C. But... Since we've been going through Esther and Ruth, we've discovered that when it was written might not be as important as when it takes place, right? When it takes place. This also makes Ecclesiastes very unique because there's another phrase that's used exclusively in Ecclesiastes, and it's this phrase, under the sun. And this is where the book takes place. Under the sun. As we'll see later, the book shadows or invokes the first five chapters of Genesis and has death and the end of things as a major theme. So it takes place during time. Then, now, and later. Not during a time, but during time. And that is what makes this book so relevant for us today. And I say that word relevant, and some of you probably the hair stands up on your neck a little bit when you hear that. That came up yesterday at our men's breakfast, this idea of being relevant. But this relevant, <clears throat> I'm not talking about the attempt to chase the culture kind of relevance that's bringing down the modern church. This idea that we have to mold ourselves and be culturally relevant and hip and cool and now, which all those things I just said aren't any of those things now, but... Um, but it, it's not that. I'm talking about solid biblical truths that are practical and relevant to God's children today and always. So under the sun, that phrase under the sun equals time from the beginning to the end, from creation to the eschaton. Will you turn in your Bibles with me to those passages that you see there? I'll show you what under the sun, when it started and when it's going to end. Genesis chapter 1. 
Verse 14, 15, and 16. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two lights, the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. That's when it started. When God created the earth and the sun and the earth started spinning, the earth was at that point under the sun. Turn to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter three, verse ten. Oh, I'm in First John. Too far. Okay. Chapter three, verse ten. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and all its works will be burned up. So that's when it'll end. That's when under the sun will end. So all these times he's using under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's talking about this created part of God's sovereign plan. There's only one other time in all of Scripture in 2 Samuel 12.12 12, where it's translated in some translations it says under the sun but that's a completely different Hebrew word and it actually means before the sun or out in the open or like our saying out in broad daylight. Right? So that's the only other time it's used. So this use of under the sun is exclusive to Ecclesiastes. Turn to uh, Psalm 72.5 that gives us an idea of what it means, of what Solomon's talking about. Because this Psalm 72, Psalm 72 is written by Solomon. Psalm 72, verse 5. See, at the very top in some of your Bibles, it might say, the reign of a righteous king, a psalm, a psalm of Solomon, Right? And you go down to verse 5 and it says, Let them fear you while the sun endures. So it's a different phrase, but that's the meaning we're getting at. As long as the sun endures. As long as this created stuff lasts. Okay? So that's what it means to be under the sun. And that's when Ecclesiastes takes place. So where does it take place? <clears throat> In Palestine, in Jerusalem, right? We get in the first, we get in the first verse there. It says, "King in Jerusalem," so we know it's in Jerusalem. But this was, when we think of Jerusalem, Palestine, we think, you know, deserty. And this was a Jerusalem that was in its apex, a, a kingdom that was at its absolute apex. Okay, when Solomon was ruling, David had just finished ruling built the kingdom, united the kingdom, and he hands it over to Solomon. 
it was the happiest place and time for the Jews. Even now, they still go to the Temple Mount, to the Wailing Wall to pray. It was a very precious time period for the Jewish people. They were extremely wealthy and powerful nation. It was a time of peace and prosperity. The building of the temple, right? Solomon's temple. Think of all the security and peace that the temple brought from our study in Mark. You remember Mark 13 when they were leaving the temple and one of the disciples said, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, right? When he was looking at the, at the temple as they were leaving it. Jesus said it was all going to be destroyed. But he was putting his, you know, we still have God's presence. We still have the temple. That was a thousand year old temple that that disciple was talking about. And it had been destroyed and rebuilt. This, during Solomon's time, was a brand new shiny temple full of God's presence. An amazing time full of God's visible power and glory. So what we have here in Ecclesiastes is the joyful boasting of a king at the pinnacle of his glory in his nation, right? No. (laughs) That's not the way it reads. But like when, uh, it could be said that Ecclesiastes takes place here. It takes place on earth, under the sun. So the book of Ecclesiastes takes place here and now. That makes it unique (laughs) in the rest of Scripture. So let's get into some of the meat here. What? What is this book about? The organization of the book, as I said earlier, is difficult to determine. (laughs) It's difficult because of the types of literature. There's no clear order to it. You remember Guga has been very good over the last three narratives. We've gone through Mark and Esther and Ruth now, and he's shown the charts that A, B, C, D, D, C, you know, the the charts that show the organization. That's amazing and great. It's not going to happen with this book. (laughs) It's not like that. And in this book, we need to be very, very careful what we're (coughs) pulling out and looking at because... uh, like the book of Job, but Job is difficult too, but Job has a narrative. But if you pull things out of the middle of Job, you're going to get a whole bunch of bad advice. That's all. The middle part is his friends giving him a whole bunch of bad advice. And if you just isolate those things and try and pull them out, you're going to get a lot of bad advice. So this book is similar. We need to look at things um, more carefully, but it's a lot more isolated. But it does have an overarching themes that we're looking at. Okay? I did find uh, the closest thing I could find to a good um, kind of organization, and I liked it because it shows the cohesiveness of the scriptures, which Google has also been very good to point out. Like Mark had a lot to do with Isaiah, and he's been pulling out in Esther. We should know what it means that they're in exile. You know, you have to look at the whole scripture. So in David, uh, or sorry, in Benjamin Shaw's book, uh, he put, he. Um, pulls this out, the shadows or echoes of Genesis that are kind of all through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want you to turn to that. We're not going to look at every single one of these. If you want this slide, I can send you this slide separately because it is very interesting. I went and read the first five books of or first five chapters of Genesis and read it alongside. It's very, very compelling and interesting and does show that, that Solomon had something on his mind. When he was writing all this stuff, it's not just random thoughts of a king at the end of his life. Let's look, if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. 
I want to show you an example of how it coheres with the rest of Scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, when, woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it fruit and ate it. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So those three things, those three aspects of temptation. It was good for food. If you remember in our study in Ruth that bread, food has to do with prosperity, right? The reason Elimelech and, and uh, Naomi left, the famine. There's no prosperity. So they went to Moab. And, that, and then they went back because it was back. The, fa- the food was back. So they came back for food, for prosperity. So food goes in with prosperity. And delight of the eyes, just pleasures. And making one wise, wisdom. Those are exactly what we're going to be looking at in the book of Ecclesiastes, those three things. And also, if you go to Matthew chapter 4 and look at the temptation of Christ, same three things pop up with Christ, right? If you're uh, the Son of God, turn the, you're, He was hungry 40 days without food. And the devil says, if you're hungry, make these stones into bread. No problem, Right? So that's the temptation. Three, three different areas of temptation. Three aspects of temptation. So anyway, I would commend this to you also to look at and study. And, and, uh, and it just shows that this whole entire book is one book, right? That's what we're, that's what we're seeing here. So the organization of the book. That's as close as I could get. <laughs> the themes. The themes of the book. The major theme is vanity. Sometimes translated meaninglessness or meaningless. The primary theme. The Hebrew word habel or havel. And the word appears about 38 times in this book. On average of about five Uh, about every five verses. So, very often. And it's clearly an important idea that we need to understand. So, let's let's start out with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean pointless or meaningless. There's a quote from uh, Living Life Backwards, the first book I mentioned. David Gibson says, I want to propose that many well-intended Bible translations have actually led us astray by translating the Hebrew word habel as meaningless in this context. We tend to read this word as if it was spoken by an undergraduate philosophy student who comes home after his first year of studies and confidently announces that the universe as we know it is pointless and life has no meaning. But that is not the preacher's perspective. One of the reasons that Ecclesiastes gets set aside is this idea that it's some existential or nihilistic philosophy that doesn't even belong in Scripture. But it's not. I wanted to contrast it with a couple of quotes from actual philosophers here. John Paul Sartre. I want to, when I read when I read his quote, I feel like I want to do a French accent and have a cigarette. Do 
What is life but an unpleasant interruption to a peaceful non-existence? How about Albert Camus? The literal meaning of life is whatever you're doing that prevents you from killing yourself. That guy's the life of the party, right? Or Frederick Nietzsche. Is man one of God's blunders or is God one of man's blunders? And then he answers his question later on because he says, woman, woman was God's second mistake. <laughs> wow. Just a light, there's Woody Allen, who's not a philosopher, I don't believe, but Woody Allen said, I took, a, I took a test in existentialism. I left all the answers blank and I got a hundred. <laughs> so... But this is not what Ecclesiastes is. It's not some crazy philosophy that doesn't belong in the Bible. Also, it doesn't have much to do with our word vain. When we're talking about having an exceptionally high view of oneself. Like a Carly Simon, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, kind of vain. It doesn't have anything to do with that at all. Um, <clears throat> so what does it mean? What does it mean? It represents that which is passing or insubstantial or fleeting. That which is passing can also disappoint or frustrate. In sum, Habel represents that which is passing or temporary. And that which is temporary is by definition insubstantial. It will not last. The sunrise may be beautiful, but it is Habel. It's passing. And if you try to hang on to it, you'll eventually lose it. And that's what I've done that. I don't know how many times I've been at the beach and I'm lining up my camera and taking the picture of the sun. I missed the whole sunrise because I'm trying to take And the pictures don't look anything like the sunset or sunrise. But that's what we're talking about here. That's the essence of this word. It's vapor. Shaw, Benjamin Shaw, remember I said he's the Old Testament uh, theologian. And in his book, he actually translates Ecclesiastes himself and he leaves the word Koheleth as Koheleth and then he also translates the word Habel as instead of vanity, he translates it as vaporous. So where it says vanity of vanities, <clears throat> Shaw says most vaporous. And that's, the, that's really the idea. It's like a candle. When you blow out a candle... And there's that little puff of smoke and it's there and then it's gone. And if you try to grab it, you can't grab it. It's gone. So now we've been talking about Ecclesiastes for a while. Should we go read some of Ecclesiastes? <laughs> Let's look at the first few verses. Can we turn to chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes? I'm going to read the first 11 verses. The words of the preacher, Koheleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Or, most vaporous, says the preacher, says Koheleth. Most vaporous. All is vapor. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. 
blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling around. On its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See, this is new. Already it has, it has existed for ages, which were before us. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later. The book begins with a blunt statement that the cycle of the world is passing. Everything about it is passing. It's moving on. And if we try to hold on to it, we'll be frustrated and disappointed because it doesn't last. Remember our example of the sunset. Kohelis shows us from nature and from human experience that everything is repetitive and ordinary and fleeting. It reminds us of Genesis chapter 8. God's promise to Noah. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I think we're right. We're right about there right now, right? This is summer coming to an end. Fall's getting ready to happen. Then winter. Then spring. Then summer. Then winter. <laughs> right? <laughs> it keeps coming. This is the main theme of the book. Solomon tries different things. Good things. Things that God has given us and tries to find satisfaction under the sun and ultimately declares all is vanity or vaporous and chasing after the wind. There's three things that he chased after. I kind of grouped them together a little bit, but there you'll see how they overlap, I think. <clears throat> Remember Genesis 3.6 that we read, the three aspects of temptation that Eve was tempted with. These are similar. Look at chapter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, just where we left off, if you're still there. Verses 13 to 18. I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I realized that this also is striving after the wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. <clears throat> wisdom is not a bad thing. Right? 
in chapter 9, flip over a couple chapters to chapter 9 in Ecclesiastes, he says, 9 verse 16, So I said, wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom's better. Wisdom's better than something. It's a good thing, right? Wisdom is better than strength. And also, he wrote the entire book of Proverbs, right? <laughs> wisdom. So he wants us to have wisdom. So look at uh, chapter seven. Chapter seven, verses twelve. Wisdom is a protection just as money is... We read this earlier. Wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. And in verse 19, wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So wisdom's a good wisdom's a good thing. But what's he mean here in verse 18? Where he says, in much wisdom there's much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. It's the idea that if you're chasing wisdom just to gain wisdom, if you want to be the smartest one in the conversation, the smartest one in the room, I want to be the smartest one in my class. If you want to know all the gossip, you want to know what everybody else is doing. That's, uh, is that where FOMO comes from? Is that the fear of missing out? Right, I got to know everything that's going on. Kind of a social media thing. I got to see what everybody's doing. I got to make sure they did this and like that. And so we're chasing this earthly kind of knowledge about what's going on on earth. And if you look at oh, look at chapter seven, verses twenty-one and twenty-two. This is this is good for the. Uh, social media stuff kind of too. And just in general, if you're a boss <laughs> or a friend. Verse 21 of 7 says, Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. <laughs> right? Don't take too seriously what everybody's saying on Twitter. Right? <laughs> You might not like what you hear. And there's always more to learn, right? That's a frustrating thing about wisdom. You can't know everything. That makes it inherently frustrating. Like a, a PhD that doesn't know how to change a tire, right? Or uh, at camp, I take care of a lot of things, a lot of different things at camp. But recently we've been messing with our internet and our network and stuff. And that is not me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not there. I told them if I can't hit it with a hammer or turn it with a wrench or something, forget it. They're talking about all these things floating around and circling around. And I don't even know what they're talking about. <clears throat> so there's just never, you can never know everything. <clears throat> and as you seek wisdom... As you go after wisdom, you soon find out how much you don't know, right? And another frustrating thing, you find out how much other people don't know. And that can be frustrating, too. And you start to see how the wisdom of the world is foolishness 
and how you can't change it. Even if you did know everything. Think of Solomon, right? The wisest man that ever lived. One of the most, most wealthy or the most wealthy. And he was a king and he couldn't change. He writes a whole chapter in here about oppression. Why couldn't the king, the most wise king, rich king, why couldn't he stop oppression? You can't. And the wiser you are, the more you see that, and the more you understand that, and the more you know that. So with much wisdom comes much pain. <clears throat> what about pleasure, wealth, and labor? I link those together because <clears throat> labor, the fruit of your labor, is, is something that's addressed a bunch of times in here. Most people work to get money so that they can do stuff they want to do with it, right? So it's labor, wealth, and pleasure. So I kind of lumped all those together. They have the same idea in here. So turn to chapter 2, verse 1-3. This one, you know, this appears a little easier for us. Uh, we, get this, we get this one a little bit better. The wisdom, saying that wisdom is grief and pain that doesn't sound right doesn't sound like the bible <clears throat> chapter 2 verse 1 i said to myself come now i will test you with pleasure so enjoy yourself and behold it too was futility that's Habel, vapor i said of laughter it's madness and of pleasure what does it accomplish i explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men under the sun in the few years of their life. So yeah, this one appears a little easier. We know and we've been taught from when we were young about the fleeting pleasures and lasting consequences of sin, right? We get that, of pleasure, earthly pleasures. Alcohol and sex and <clears throat> riches and how those can... Um, how those can become all-consuming, really. But let's look at uh, let's look at chapter two, verses eighteen to twenty-five. <clears throat> Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them, this to his vanity, and he actually bumps it up a notch here and says, a great evil, a great evil. <clears throat> Verse 22, For what does a man get in all his labor and all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him, without God? Kohelis is talking here, especially in verse 21, about somebody that worked hard and smart even uses himself as an example. And Solomon's made it, right? He built the temple, the palace. He built the wall. But it's all still vapor and fleeting. You can't hold on to it. He's dreading leaving it to someone else. In verse 21, he calls that a great evil. 
And he's not sleeping well. And it's all consuming. For what? And then also, if you look at chapter 4, right on the next page on my Bible, chapter 4, verse 4, it says, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. So often, or Solomon says, always our motivation is covetous and envy. The keeping up with the Joneses. And you know that, that phrase really sells it short because it's not... It's not about keeping up with the Joneses, really, is it? It's about surpassing the Joneses, right? <laughs> That's what we're fighting for. This idea of labor, I'm going to cover in a couple weeks. I'm going to come back and, and talk about the doctrine of vocation. So I'm going to talk more about labor when we get to that. So what about... I keep doing that. What about, what about power, fame, and influence? Power, fame, and influence. Okay, turn back to chapter 2. I'm going to read 4 through 11. And I want you to notice here, I actually underlined them in my Bible and I went back because I missed a bunch of them. But I underlined and circled uh, the first person pronouns. Okay, first person pronouns in here. I'll try and highlight them a little maybe. It says, I enlarged my work I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate the forest and growing trees. I bought male and female servants and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all of my labor, and this was my reward for my labor." This I considered, thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. He became the greatest man in Israel at the peak of its power, and he did it from his perspective all by his power. That's what he's showing us here. We try to control things. <clears throat> Manipulate people and situations to make ourselves greater than others. When the reality is, we don't control anything. We try and build our own empires. Solomon built an actual empire and saw it as vapor. So the main issue with all three of these things wisdom, pleasure, power. The main issue is still the brevity, habel, and the incompleteness. You'll never make it 
because it's always a chase. It's never enough. When we were meeting on Wednesdays, I brought up uh, a survey that was done a long time ago now, but it was a survey that was done across all economic lines, from the poorest to the richest, and they asked everyone two questions. Number one is, how much do you make? Or no, I'm sorry, they asked, how much, is what you make enough? That was what they asked. Is what you make enough? Universally, everyone said no. And then they asked, how much would it take to be enough? And pretty much everyone across the board averaged about 25%. And it's funny because Jesse admitted, he said, that's about what I was thinking. And I was just driving with my brother down and he's got three teenage daughters and he was talking, if I just made 30% more money, (laughs) that's all of us. It's never enough. And then the fact is that you'll run out of time. All of it's going to come to an end. Maybe while you're alive. Because you're not in control of the economy. Right? Stock market could tank. You're not in control of the weather. Tornado could destroy your home. Right? Disease. Don't control that where it can physically take you or it can bankrupt you, right? Nowadays, you don't control those things. And it for sure will come to an end when you die. Solomon is the guy who made it. Wisdom, power, money, fame, women. He chased all of these things to their superlative. And he came up wanting. And he's dead. (laughs) And his temple is pretty much gone. (laughs) and the city is different than it was a thousand years ago, right? So why? Why did Solomon write this book? Just to be a downer, to ruin all our fun? That's certainly one reason the book gets overlooked, right? And there are other misunderstandings of this book, too. One of them is that uh, just a short, trite, life without God is meaningless. It's like an evangelistic track. You hand it over to somebody and say, look, you can try all these things, but you just need Jesus. Accept Jesus and He has a wonderful plan for your life. If you just add God to your life, everything will go better. Right? That's not why this was written either. And as we talked about, it's not ancient philosophies that don't belong in the Bible. But that's what some people think, that this was just some book of ancient philosophies that got cobbled together and then somebody to try and church it up kind of wrote the last two verses, right? And just added it to it to kind of put it together and finish it up. So it's not that either. But actually what it does do is it helps us live in a fallen world facing our imminent death and every other situation with peace that surpasses all understanding. And it exhorts us to stop pretending. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to help us live in the real world. It's a book in the Bible that gets under the radar of our thinking and acts like an incendiary device to explode our make-believe games and jolt us into realizing that everything is not as clean and tidy 
as the less pretend world suggests. Another quote from David Gibson, Being a Christian doesn't stop this death being true. Rather, it should make us the first to stop pretending that it isn't true. That is the preacher's aim. It may not make perfect sense to us, but he's carefully laying the foundation for the main argument of the book. Only preparing to die will teach us to live. Another answer to why is to see that all of life is gift, not gain. There's a quote, another quote. Far from being something that makes life in this present completely pointless, future death is a light God shines on the present to change it. Death can radically enable us to enjoy life by revitalizing all that we do in our days under the sun. Death can change us from people who want to control life for gain into people who want to find deep joy in receiving life as a gift. The main message of Ecclesiastes is life in God's world is gift, not gain. God is God. He is in control, not us. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Turn back to chapter 9. Verse 10 and 11. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, in death, where you're going. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors. Neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to the men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. And that's Matt was as soon as I said I was going to teach on Ecclesiastes, he said, What about verse eleven where it says chance? <laughs> right? <clears throat> and we know we've been hearing in Ruth, it just so happened. It just so happened. It just so happened. And we know that's not it just so happened. We know who's behind the And that's our perspective though. That's our perspective is it just so happened that I'm up here today. Right? It just so happened. And there's things we can't explain. There's questions we can't answer. Like, I can't answer the question of why a man who takes advantage of small children and abuses them in horrible, horrifying ways, why he owns his own island, and why, why Zach and Clara work hard worked with him. He works hard, smart, loves God. Why they lost the baby? I can't answer those questions. Right? 
Neither can you. That's okay. But chapter 5. Turn to chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes. It looks random to us, like chance, but it's not. Chapter 5, we're past it. Verse 1 and 2. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know they're doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Wow. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That's a put you in your place verse right there, right? Think about it. How often do we do that though? I can't even count the number of times. God, if you just did this, if you just did this, you'd get the glory. Or why doesn't it go this way, God? Why is this happening to me, God? Right? Think about it before you say it. He even says, don't be hasty with your words or impulsive with your thoughts. Don't even bring up the thoughts. God knows your thoughts. So we're not in control of everything or anything. What about God's gift? Look at chapter 5. We're in chapter 5. Go to uh, verse 18. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. To eat and to drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor, which he toils under the sun during the few years. And the NAS is generous right there. That word is days. It actually means days. So, enjoy oneself and all the labor in which he toils under the sun during the few days of his life, which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive the reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he will not often consider the years, the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Everything is a gift. Chapter 3. Back up to chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. He, God, has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in the heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. That's that you'll never know everything. You can't know everything. You can't change anything. I know that there is nothing better than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor It is a gift of God. I know that everything that God does will remain forever. And there's nothing to add to it. And there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. God is in control. And everything that you have is a gift. And... uh, I watched a, a couple of sermons that Alistair Begg did on, on Ecclesiastes. And he also didn't try to go verse by verse. He did an overview and a, a quick summation verse uh, uh, sermon. But he said, and one of us, he's getting to some of these passages, he says, that sounds very Old Testament-y. And, and it does, right? It does. 
But let's, uh, let's take a look. Let's turn to these and look and see what the New Testament has to say about the themes from Ecclesiastes. About the words of Jesus, Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 25-34. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life. Huh. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, hey, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. That's the, the idea I was talking about of chasing, chasing these things. The Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And if you go to chapter 9, or no, go back to verse 9. This is interesting too. 9 to 13, the Lord's Prayer. Pray then in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, under the sun, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. That's it. Give us this day our daily bread. Not, Lord, I really need this new job. I really want this relationship. I've got to have a new house. Give us this day our daily bread. About Philippians. Let's look at Paul's words. Those are Jesus' words. Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4. Chapter 4, 11 through 13. Not that I speak from want... For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That puts a little different twist on that phrase. You hear that one verse a lot, don't you? But it's more of a... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Me, 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 like we were reading in chapter 2 there. My, so I can enlarge my thing, do my thing, my power. But if you look at the first few verses, he can, do, he can be content in all things because he knows who God is. James chapter 4. This is the, one of the classic ones here. James chapter 4, 1 through 4. This, is, this we ran into too. Remember when we were talking about uh, 
getting money and how that motivation for getting money is envy, jealousy, those kind of things. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Ouch. You adulteress, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then look at 13, same chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. But see here, going, right? And engaging and planning, those things aren't bad things. He says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, and then go and do, and right? But those aren't the bad things. The bad things is us thinking that we can control it. This is my plan. I got it. I'm going to make it work. First John chapter 2. Last couple here. First John chapter 2. 15 to 17. For do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The word here is love. It doesn't say do not enjoy the world, right? It says do not love the world. Look at uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Stay in First John. Go to chapter 3.16. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So when He says love in chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world nor the things of the world, He's saying don't give yourself to them. Don't chase them. Don't make them your priority. Don't love them. We can enjoy the world enjoy the gifts that God has given us. That's the main, main message. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. There's a whole bunch more in the New Testament. There's a ton more in Ecclesiastes. I recommend both those books to you if you want some encouragement and some deeper thinking on those. We just had a taste today of what it's talking about. A unique bite that we're not used to, right? But my hope is that like with the doctrines of grace, before you didn't see it, and now you see it all over Scripture. Remember those days when you first saw it? Now it's, oh, it's there, it's there, it's there. I hope 
that you will see God's glorious sovereignty and His gracious love in everything. In the mundane, repetitive, oppressive, tedious moments of everyday life. And that you'll see the brevity of your days and live like the end is near. So we believe, right, that salvation is a gracious gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, right? Unconditional election. Nothing I can do. What if we looked at everything that way? Every breath. Every job. My marriage. My singleness. My church. Because it is. That's what it is. How would that change the way we live? I'll close with this verse. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days and let me know how fleeting I am. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in You. Heavenly Father, all we can do is say thank You. We know because You've shown us, Lord, that You are our Creator, that You are everything that we can see and touch and feel and think about as Creator. And we praise You for it, Lord. And we know that You have a plan. And we know that we don't know it. Keep us humble, Lord. Help us to not love the world and give ourselves to the things of the world. Help us to give ourselves to You. Love You. Help us to love each other. Because we've seen that You gave everything, Your Son, to be with us. And that we would do the same for You, for Your church. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.